Well, good morning. We have gathered to worship God this beautiful day in May. At least that's what it feels like. February will come again. I don't have to be a prophet to figure that one, but we're going to enjoy the sunshine and the warmth as we can. It's good to be together as God's people. Our call to worship for this morning is taken from the book of Psalms. The last five Psalms of those 150 that form this book very much focus on worship of the Lord. And so I've taken five verses, broken them out responsively. Let's begin to let our hearts be drawn to the goodness of the gospel and the God who has saved us. We'll read responsively. I'll begin for you. It says this, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our opening hymn, you'll find it on the screen. I sing the mighty power of God. You'll recognize the hymn tune, see the words and the music on the screen. Let us stand and worship. Amen. And have a seat if you would, please. 
It's always my joy to welcome those of you who've joined us here in this space for worship this morning. Again, it's a beautiful day, feels like May here in February in Michigan, but we've gathered to give voice to the joy within us. And I welcome as well those who by way of our live stream or recording, let us join with you for a moment of worship and ministry right in your space. I'm thankful that we get to extend ministry in hospitals and uh, retirement communities and to actually countries outside the United States. It's a marvelous thing. A couple of quick things after the service. We'll gather for our um, coffee and munchies. We'll have our post-service follow-up. And here, I'm excited, this is our missionary in Africa this week. Last week, we had seven people here that we prayed for. David is already in South Africa. It's summer there, so we're sharing some of the good weather with him. The Yoders are in transit right now to get to Africa. Remember these folks and pray and stand amazed at the wonder and glory of our God. We are part of a worldwide work that God is doing in our time and our place. If you've partnered with um, Heart Awake, you get to be a part of sending folks like David uh, to the other ends of the earth. You also get a, to be a part of an upcoming chili cook-off on our Wednesday night. Um, we gather to eat, and this coming Wednesday, the staff or staff wives We'll make some great chili. We'll vote on the best for that. We'll raise funds, again, for missions, for the gospel to go out. Another thing we're doing, I know many of you have brought non-perishable food items. We're helping Gateway Mission here in town uh, gather food to be able to distribute. Just drop that off in the hallway by the wall. You'll see the gathering mountain of goodies for folks. Um, all of this is a reflection of what we believe God has called Heart Awake to do and be, to be a people where you're invited to join the journey of being found in, formed by, and following Christ Jesus. And so, in, at all times and in every ways, I'm asking, is what we're doing connected with that mission? Does each step lead us to the uh, next step in what God has for us? And when we share the gospel, another thing I'm realizing is more and more important. I'm not inventing a message for this day. God in his grace has been at work across centuries. That's why I preach from the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's gathered people. He's communicated to us the goodness of his grace and his good plans, not always completely, but enough to know and obey. And so there's been a faith that has been handed down to us once and for all. And then it's a challenge of living it out in our day and time. That's why I particularly love going back and touching the good faith that's gone before us, those expressions. We use um, question from the Heidelberg Catechism. For the rest of this month, we'll look at question 86. And let me give you just some context. Remember, this is question 86. There are 85 questions before that one. And so, given some of the things that have been said and go before, then this follows. So, you need the whole truth to understand a portion of the truth. So, we keep all the faith of the catechism in mind. But here we are with question number 86. Let me ask the question and then we'll respond together. Let it shape our faith. 
Friends, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, that's part of what's gone before, why then should we do good works? Good question. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives, we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's stand and, as you're able and sing together. Hymn number 833, There is a Redeemer. Amen. And have a seat, if you would, please. 
as we come to the time of prayer, and I want to pray, and then after the Lord's Prayer, I'll gather the kids up here for the children's, the whole church video, really. We are all getting something out of that. It's good. I'm really aware of the challenges going on in our world uh, today. We've seen, and I'll be praying for the uh, earthquake victims in Turkey and Syria. Um, I think of Turkey as a nation that imprisoned uh, EPC pastor, Andrew Brunson, just a few years ago. He was still in jail, as I recall, when I got here. And yet God calls us to minister and to um, be a part of there. I'm watching the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I've noticed that to get a firm count on casualties on either side is really difficult. Neither side really wants to kind of let the word out. The United States' best estimate is that the Ukrainian people have lost 100,000 soldiers. And we also estimate that the Russians have lost 100,000 soldiers, though the Norwegians have estimated about 180 Russian soldiers died in this. That, those numbers stuck in my mind when I read something else this week. In the year 2021, there was a nation that lost 107,000 people. Not just Ukraine, not just Russia, but another nation. You know what nation that was? It was the United States, 107,000 American citizens overdosed and died on drugs, mostly fentanyl. It's as if there's a war of Russia and Ukraine and a war in our nation dealing with the scourge of drug addiction that leads to death. So we'll be praying about that a bit too. Prayer and action. I get and I hear often the demand to do something. And boy, do I get that. <laughs> um, but as a believer, prayer is where the motivation and strategy for what I do comes from. See the difference? When I live as a believer in Jesus Christ, I couldn't imagine acting without praying. I've done that before, and I won't tell you about the outcome. <laughs> Likewise, I can't imagine praying without God giving me something to act on. When I look at Jesus in the Gospels, he's a person who prays and then lives out of that prayer. He acts from the place of prayer. That's what Jesus does that's what we're called to do and be. So let's pray and let's listen to the voice of our good shepherd who will guide us next steps. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, help us to stay centered in life on you and who you are. Thank you that the gospel of your grace is like spokes that extends out from that hub to every aspect of life. And so, centered on you, may your gospel work through us into every area of life. Thank you that uh, those things that are out on the rim, even when we get them a bit out of balance, that if we stay centered on you, the wheel still works. But when we take those things from the edges and bring them to the center, Everything is out of balance. So help us to stay centered on who you are and to live out the gospel into all that you've called us to. 
Father, as I look at this world, my heart grieves for the people of Turkey and Syria that have been devastated by this earthquake, approaching 30,000 deaths. In our shared humanity, our hearts grieve, but motivated and directed by the gospel of grace, we pray, we invest in relief, and we extend the gospel of your grace. Father, what is it that makes violence so attractive to us as an option of expression in this country? What is it that draws us uh, to, the, uh, to drugs? Help us to see the emptiness of this moment and to know that our hearts will not be at rest until they are at rest in you. Thank you that the gospel is a great hope. And so we pray that you would guide Hardwike to be shaped by that gospel and to extend the gospel in what we do, in how we pray, and how we live. We pray right now for Pastor Aaron, who'll be preaching the same text as I will, but he'll be in watershed with that part of our body. And for Pastor JB, he'll be preaching from Ezra and Haggai, same as here, in fusion. For Pastor Florencio and Mission, as they speak Spanish and share the gospel in just a few hours. For Pastor Darwin, who'll be preaching in English, but to a Laotian community here in Holland today. Thank you that we get to serve through people like David, through the Yoders, across the boundaries of the world into the family that you are creating. Father, we pray for our own ministry right here in this place for celebration, that we might love one another, care for one another, welcome all those that you are bringing to be a part of this. Thank you for the life that we sense and feel and see. It's your gospel at work in us. Thank you that you are inviting people. You've called us to welcome them, and you extend your grace and hope. Father, for those who celebrate in our midst, we thank you for their joy. For those who grieve in our midst, we stand with them in their sorrow. For those who face confusion, questions, we stand with them until we understand the next step. For those who have been called, we will send them. Thank you that we share life together. Father, we pray too for those in authority over us this week in our cycle for the state of Michigan, for our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, Attorney General Nessel and Secretary of State uh, Benson, for those who represent us in the State House, Nancy DeBoer and Bradley Slaw, for State Senator Roger Victory. Father, we pray for the rule of law, equality for all people, justice in every sphere. We pray that you bring shalom to the land, a wholeness and a fruitfulness that's your blessing for a people that seek you. Father, with the words of Scotty Smith, I would pray in this moment, Lord Jesus, in our day-to-day -day lives, your kingdom has already arrived in part, but we see not yet fully has it come in the way that it will one day. Through the course of each day this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, help, we will experience both beauty and brokenness, 
magnificence and messiness. Life, like a lovely floral bouquet, comes often with blood-drawing thorns. Joy and sorrow, peace and fear, they will coexist and commingle in our lives, relationships, work, and world until Jesus returns. That same relationship that yields moments of unspeakable joy and deep intimacy can still generate very speakable irritation and disconnect with ones we love. Let us not be surprised, but by your powerful grace, let us navigate the tension of our world very carefully, bringing wisdom and riches by your gospel to bear fruit in our lives on a daily basis. Father, thank you for the relationship that you cultivate, cultivate in us as you draw us into prayer. Help us to repent of seeing prayer as a transaction that we have with you. We do in order to get. Instead, in this moment, Abba Father, we enter into relationship and pray just as Jesus taught us using these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. One of the great ways to review this text we're doing is to, with the children's video we've got. So those of you kids who want to join with uh, Miss Janet, myself, up here, uh, we'll gather in the front row, get a good seat, and see. Here we go. Before the Israelites left Babylon, the king of Persia, who had overthrown Babylon, decided to help them rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem. He organized people from all over the land to give livestock and supplies to the Israelites. He even returned all of the gold and silver that the Babylonians had stolen from the temple. 50,000 Israelites returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the altar of the temple, then laid the foundation for the building itself. Before the temple was even finished, the Israelites began to offer sacrifices and worship God in it once again. But other countries surrounding Jerusalem began to worry about the Israelites regaining power. So they sabotaged the rebuilding project and it came to a standstill for 16 years. But God used two men, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the Israelites to resume building the temple and not to be afraid of their enemies. So they continued building, strengthened by the prophet's word. The opposition continued, this time from a man named Tatanai, the governor of a nearby region. He wanted to stop the Israelites from building and worked to convince the Persian king, Darius, to stop the Israelites. Not only did King Darius not stop the rebuilding project, he threatened Tatanai and anyone else who would try to stop the temple from being rebuilt, that he would kill them. Then he made Tatanai give funding, animals, and supplies to the Israelites. So the work continued, and almost 70 years after it had been destroyed, the Israelites finished rebuilding the temple. 
They dedicated it by sacrificing hundreds of animals to God and returning the priests back to their positions of leadership in the temple. God was once again worshipped in Jerusalem. So that's the first part of the story. As Israel was carried off to the Babylonian captivity, now they're coming back. And it's a good word that even as sometimes God has a time out for us, he also brings us back in the fullness of his love. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you that you've given it to us of all ages and generations. Be with these young men, extend to them the fullness of your grace, even as you would to each of us, that in Christ we are bound together, old and young, in the wonder of your goodness. Be with us this day and with those who work in our children's ministry. Be encouragement, we ask, in Jesus' mighty name, and all of God's people said together, amen. amen. All righty. Y'all may head off. There goes some energy. Whoo. Well, we're in a new season of Bible history, and that's kind of what I'd like to point out today. Um, we've been working along the way here. We're in what's called now the post-exile period, and if you'll think about the timeline, um, after the kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom was carried off by the Assyrians, and last week we saw the southern kingdom, Judah, was carried off to captivity in the Babylonians, and that's where um, Daniel thrived in his ministry. Well, now the next point in history is them coming back. Uh, to the southern kingdom, to Judah. We'll read history. If you're following the um, story, you'll read the history through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. There's three post-exile prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they give us this sense of time, but it's a new time. And we're calling this next mini-series A Kingdom in Repair. And it's about God bringing this kingdom back in human history but always with a point towards what? Towards Jesus. The repair of the kingdom makes sense when we look at it through the hub or the lens of the good news of God's gospel and the, and the kingdom. Yeah, this week we did chapter 19, the return home, and you see various passages from two of the prophets and one of the historian, Ezra, and then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So, this morning we'll want to read, I'm going to be looking at specific texts from Ezra and Haggai around this theme of repent, renew, and then repeat. Uh, follow on the screen with me, they'll press forward and I'll read. Let us hear the word of God. In the very first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put in writing. And here's what he put in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Now note something here. Cyrus has been mentioned by name three times here. 
Let's go on. Cyrus says this, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is a very specific God. You'll notice previously, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of God as he revealed himself to Moses. Now, a little later in Ezra, we read this, chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, those two tribal groups, heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they went to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Ah, let us help you build. Like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered this way, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we'll move over to the writings of the prophet Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, remember the history here, Cyrus followed by Darius. We just read about that earlier. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while his house remains a ruin? Is it a, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Boy, there's a picture. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What brought you home, I blew away. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is truth, and indeed it is our hope. We ask this day that just as you were faithful to inspire and to guide people in the writing down, in the preserving, and now the translating, the study, that you would be present right here to illumine our hearts and minds to receive 
the good word you have for each of us this day. Shape our hearts and minds, bind us together as a community of growing faith, and then send us this day, touched by the Spirit of God, to bring glory to the living God and benefit to his creation. We thank you for your goodness. Guard your people from our own brokenness and confusion. These things we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Well, as we look at this series of events that Ezra records and Haggai provides the Lord's comments on, I want to point something out to you. I'm going to call this particular moment, Two Prophets and a King. If you were to do a quick search and look at every reference to Cyrus, king of Persia, you'd find most of them right here, Ezra, Haggai, uh, the post-exile time. But there's two instances of him being named by the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 44, 28, and 45, 1, Isaiah the prophet mentions Cyrus. Cyrus, who is my shepherd, it says in Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, Isaiah 45. Now, what's interesting and what I encourage you to take just a moment for and ponder is this. Isaiah lived and ministered during the reign of Uzziah and Hezekiah, roughly 740 to 681. Now, you've got to be a little careful with the numbers. There was no universal calendar, neither was there a timestamp like we're accustomed to. They would judge time, culture by culture, king by king. So the best way we can summarize this is Isaiah, about 740 to 680. He's not mentioned by name, but Jeremiah is the prophet when Israel falls, when, I'm sorry, when Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, is carried off by the Babylonians. And he's the one who sends the letter to the captives in Babylonia. That's about 607 BC. Again, it's hard to connect it to our dating real precisely. But here's what's fascinating. Cyrus defeats Babylon about 539 and sends folks back. The beginning of the return starts about 537. And even if you're bad at math like me, you're going to see a distance of about 140, 150, maybe even 160 years between Cyrus who sends them back and Cyrus who's mentioned by name by Isaiah. How does that happen? How does a person get named 150 years before he does what he does? Imagine, this is kind of like at the inauguration of George Washington, the pastor stands up to pray for the invocation, and he says, and in the future, when Stalin joins with us to defeat the Germans, that's about 150 years after that event. How does that happen? You name somebody 150 years before it happens. Well, Ponder that. Now, if you go out to that fountain of knowledge and truth, the internet, 
One of the things you will find is the two Isaiahs. That's a common statement in the various things out there. And the two Isaiahs, what they would, will tell you is that there was the Isaiah of 7040, and he wrote the first 39 chapters. And then there was another Isaiah who wrote after the return. And he could mention Cyrus because he was living after Cyrus. And those two got put together. That's an idea that developed at about 1880. This won't be on the test, but I just want you to have a sense of time. So 1880, I'm not going to call that modern scholarship. It's an old idea that's been around. And it was based on two things. One was that if you read Isaiah, which I encourage you to do, you'll notice that the first 39 chapters have one kind of feel and the rest of it has a different kind of feel. Vocabulary, sentence structures, that kind of thing. Now you'll also notice if you read C.S. Lewis and were to look at his collected works, they'd have a very different feel. Guess what? C.S. Lewis's children's literature, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, reads a little differently than his scholarly work in medieval poetry or his sermons or his radio address to Great Britain. So we know one writer can have a variety of styles. That doesn't convince me. Well, the second reason is just because it's so. There's two Isaiahs because you can't give a name 150 years before somebody. I realized as a student when I first ran into this that I was told there were two Isaiahs, but there was no evidence. Evidence like this. You know how archaeology works? You, you dig down to this ancient time and you see what you've got there, and then you dig a little lower and see what you get. You know how that kind of works? Well, it's not like at one point there was one book of Isaiah, and then you got a little older and you found two. There was no textual evidence. There was just a sense that you cannot give a name 150 years before it happens. And what that is, I see now as never before, that that's looking at the world as if it was just one level. The imminent frame you've heard me talk about, cause and effect, only this can cause that. And I want to tell you, we bump into right here one of those moments in the scripture that point us to a transcendent reality, a spiritual reality. You can't get 150 years early without there being something outside of history. And that's part of the gospel, friends. It's part of the gospel. Because God's word teaches us that life is more than just a heartbeat and a brainwave. We had a great podcast this week. It'll be going up in a, another week or two by Hope Professor called The End of the Christian Life. It was reflecting on death. And boy, we were really struck together, the four of us, as we talked about uh, his book. And he was present with us, Todd Billings. We were struck that death is more than just the end of a heartbeat and a brainwave. There's more to life than just what you can measure. There's more to life than simply physical cause and effect. And occasionally, once every 5,000 years, the God who stands outside of history will name someone beyond cause and effect history. Friends, there's a transcendent quality to life. The scripture teaches it. 
I may get it wrong. I may be confused. I may wonder. But here's part of the good news. God is guiding history. And so when he brings the captives back from Babylon, it's not by accident. It's on his time frame. It's for his purpose. And the first thing that Cyrus has them do is a quick start. Rebuild the worship. And this becomes for me a model of discipleship. Where does discipleship start? It begins with learning to worship God for who he is more than just what worship does for us. I'm glad to get together with friends. I'm glad for the inspiring music. I'm glad for all that we share. But worship is God-centered. And that's what's going on. There's a quick start in Ezra 3. You see that immediately within seven months of the return, they began giving offerings as prescribed in the law of Moses. And soon the work on the rest of it, the work of the temple starts up and they get going with that. And that's a a good start, a quick start, kind of like our New Year's resolutions. I'd like to start at the beginning and do good. I'll set a time where I read some Bible, pray, a time of self-reflection to listen for the voice of the Good Shepherd. Yeah, here's a good start. But as our New Year's resolutions often do, we face some challenges. In Ezra 4, and you heard about this today, the citizens, the people who lived in the old northern kingdom, Israel, come down to the southern kingdom, Judah, And they say, let us help. What could be wrong with that? Don't you need help in doing what's good? Mm, Listen, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. I immediately want to ask, what's his name? If you know him, do you know his name? Or are you talking about a God by another name? We seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time the king of Assyria who brought us here. Okay, now I see. These are the people. Um, Earlier, the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom and carried them off and then replaced them with other people. These other nationalities came to the northern kingdom began to mix their worship together. So what is presented as a let us help, we're all in this together, is really something else. It's mixed worship. The technical term is syncretism. Well, it's just God. You can worship God any way that inspires you. Oh. God prescribed how he wanted to be worshiped in the law of Moses. God gives us direction for what it means to worship him. He may not give us key and time signature, but he tells us, sing to the Lord in his word. So suddenly there's opposition, syncretism, mixed worship. And finally, you get a sense of the heart of these people in the northern kingdom. Resistance sets in. They begin paying bribes and arranging political power to get in the way, to make it impossible. And it's just like the resistance that we often face in our own lives. We take a step forward in discipleship and faithfulness to God, but then life gets busy. By February or March, it's overwhelming. I may be even get busy because I get promoted. Have you ever noticed how many times there's good things in your life that fill your life up with distractions? Oh, they're new opportunities. Many of them are good opportunities. 
helpful offers from outside, but they pull you off center. And before long, construction has stalled. And this is where in our reading for this sermon, I want to move to the prophet Haggai. And there's this encounter with Haggai as he speaks the word of God. You see, it was the intention of their turning exiles to begin to build the place of worship. And then they got started, but they faced some resistance. And before long, things have stalled. And God has, as it were, a bone to pick. This is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit saying through the prophet, uh, pardon me, uh, wake up here. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Well, a decade earlier, they were hard at it. What's changed? Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while the house of God remains a ruin? Oh, so there was outward opposition, but then comes a season of inward distraction. Well, they're opposing us on rebuilding the house of God. I think I'll put the energy and effort into my... For them, it was a house. For us, it might be. And God ends, give careful thought to your ways. So there was a statement by the people followed by an observation of God. Where is the real energy going? With a final exhortation. Give careful thought to your ways. Reflect. Let me speak. Consider where you've been and where you are. Give careful thought to your ways. Now, I'm always quick to say that the events of the Old Testament, while true in themselves, find real meaning in what they point to. And what Jesus says they point to is him. And so what this movement here that we read in um, Ezra and in uh, the prophet Haggai is meant to point to something about Jesus. Now, Jesus tells us, now that he's died and resurrected, where is the temple of God? Come on, folks, turn to the person next to you and tell them, I think he's pointing to you. Friends, we are living stones, Peter writes. We are the temple of God. The temple of stone was meant to point us to the coming temple of the living God in living people. So the issue of worship getting started and stopped is not simply about a building. It's about a people called to be the temple Getting started, stopping. Getting started, stopping. See, friends, let me tell you, this is why when you hear rumors about the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, you need to understand that whatever that is, it has nothing to do with the gospel. There is no need to rebuild the Jewish temple and sacrificial system in Jerusalem, at least not in Christianity. What that was pointing to is now before us in reality and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's enough. That is enough. So construction has stalled. 
for Haggai, and he calls the people to it. Here, I want to point to something. The rebuilding of the temple is a long process. It resumes and it's restored from this moment as they encounter Haggai, and oddly enough, it continues. Now, the temple will be done. They'll continue sacrificing in just a few years. That's how the the 70 from its destruction to its rebuilding is calculated. But then it goes on into the time of Jesus. The second temple period goes on for centuries as if it's there to remind us that you may make the physical temple more and more elaborate, but it'll never satisfy it. There's more to life than just the physical. You can add a wing to that temple. You can build it higher, put in more gold, anything you want in the physical. But what it's pointing to is a spiritual transcendent reality, what God is doing among us, what he wants to do to you. So this rebuilding of the temple, it comes to a a sufficient stop, but then it continues as if to remind us that It can never fully satisfy. Friends, our hearts will not be at rest when we just fill them up with more physical things. Bigger church, it won't give you peace. More elaborate uh, corporation, more secure job, bigger, better country. We were not meant for those. They point us to a deeper need. Even Haggai says that something more glorious than the first will happen in this second temple. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus. This is the temple in which God himself, God the Son in the flesh, will walk, will worship, will teach, will pray. That's why it's significant. It points to Jesus, and Jesus himself would be there. That's enough to honor any physical being, any physical building. So friends, we see in this history the rebuilding of a temple, physical in nature, that points to a redeeming God, physical in nature. But it's to remind us of the gospel that God is doing a transcendent work, that we are living stones. The construction of the temple speaks to us about the construction of our lives. And I love this word when I think about discipleship, about being shaped by Christ, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm stealing this, as it were, the journey of discipleship from the title of a book by Eugene Peterson. It just seems to express it so well. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what we see Israel called to here. That's what we understand our own lives called to right now in this moment together. There'll be a challenge to our discipleship. One aspect of that can sometimes be resistance, external. And when there's external resistance, well, the response needs to be faithful disobedience. I'm a servant of the living God. External resistance, I will not be determined whether the apostles in Acts, whether Zerubbabel resisting the offer of help from the people of the northern kingdom, or whether someone like Wang Yi now in prison in China, or Andrew Brunson, the EPC pastor held in Turkey, or Dr. Martin Luther King, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there will be external challenges that call us to faithful disobedience. 
Daniel is an extraordinary example of that. And we read of him this week. But this week, there's a different kind of challenge. It's the challenge of misaligned priorities. And if you respond to external resistance with faithful disobedience, you have to deal with misaligned priorities through repentant refocus. See, Israel's problem, the bone to pick that God had with Israel through the prophet Haggai, the problem was this, it was an internal issue. They had misaligned priorities. And this internal issue, Haggai points to, and he tells us how we respond to. So you need to ask yourself, friends, rare is the case in this moment of our lives, I think, that we face external resistance. I think more often than not, the battle for us in this room is misaligned priorities. And misaligned priorities are a call to repentant refocus. And that brings us to a lifestyle to repent, renew, (laughs) and then guess what? Repeat. Repent, seek a change of heart, renew, give yourself to living out of that new change. And then repeat, as often as it takes. If the Apostle Paul is an example, it'll be the rest of our life. You repent as the Scripture, the voice of the Good Shepherd or a close gospel friend, begin to shine light on the motivations of your heart. You renew by God's grace to restart the building program. Restart reading. Restart meeting with someone to self-reflect or to pray. You restart those activities that lead to relationship with God, and then you be prepared to repeat as needed daily, hourly. Have you ever struggled with sin that is an hourly renewal to press forward into what God has? When I first came to faith as a a teenager, It seemed to me that progress in Christian life was about intense experience. And so whoever in the group had the most intense experience, you kind of thought they were the furthest along. I want to tell you something. Looking back over 50 years now, I see it's not intensity of experience. It's faithfulness in small steps, day by day, saying yes to Jesus this morning and yes to Jesus this afternoon and getting up the next morning, yes to Jesus. It's seeing my work not as an end in itself, but as where God has called me to live and to be fruitful. It's seeing my children not simply as my future hope, but as small disciples of the living God that I've been entrusted with. They'll shape me, I'll shape them. Discipleship looks more like a 12-step recovery program than it does a, a medal podium after a race in the Olympics. I recently had a chance to sit with a friend Part of his coming to faith in Christ and living a more fruitful life has been dealing with uh, an addiction problem. And he talked about being part of a 12-step group and relapsing and going back to that 12-step group and taking some steps forward and relapsing. Now, he's doing well right now. But this repent, renew, repeat... What if the church were to be known as the communities, that place where people gather to repeat their repentance and renewal? 
we're all in that process or we're all just fooling ourselves if we're disciples of Christ. Let the Spirit convict you about anger in your heart. Are you quick with cutting words? Do you pull back from relationships? Are you able to point out other shortcomings? Well, repent. Why do I feel I have a right to be angry? There's a question. Why can't I seem to forgive? Let the Spirit speak to that. Do I surround myself with friends who encourage my anger? And then identify your why as you do with those kind of questions because it sets you up to then obey Jesus and repent of your anger and its root. Put it away from your heart. You may need to uh, renew by forgiving or apologizing or perhaps even stepping back from relationships and circumstances that expose you to harm. Put a filter on that computer if that's part of it. Change your route home as you drive from work. Don't go past that bar. People on the road to recovery understand that. People in the cycle of repent, renew, repeat need to live in that way. See, that's probably just one example, me dealing with my anger. There's probably 100 in this room, different for each one of us. You see, the Spirit bears fruit in our life over time. Repent, renew, repeat. Give careful thought to your ways. I included in the celebration inform. I'll close with a brief reflection on some things that are being observed in our uh, country over the past several years. Some of it is more and more clear in the more and more recent studies. One of the first places I began to see it was in a fascinating book called Bowling Alone. And it was a social researcher's observation, Robert Putnam, that more people are bowling than ever before in the United States but fewer people are bowling in bowling leagues. We're bowling alone. We're by ourselves in what we do. I'm most taken, and I I won't refer to you the original studies because they're too thick, but if you'd like to see a good summary of two very interesting recent studies, it was in the Celebration Inform under the Goodreads. And what researchers are beginning to identify We've known that there's been, over the past 10 to 20 years, a tremendous increase in what we call deaths of despair. Deaths by drug abuse, addiction, suicide. What they're identifying is that when you control for factors, at the same time and in about the same way, there's a stepping back from relationship, particularly church activity. Now, please don't oversimplify. It's easy to say, if we just get people in our churches, then this won't happen. That's an oversimplification. What I, want to do, what I do want to say is that when the gospel moves in people's hearts, it brings them into relationship with God and then into relationship with one another. And when people are in one relationship with one another, then when they're depressed or challenged or frightened or overwhelmed, they have someone to turn to. But when the social relationship declines, the consequences follow. A breakdown in relationship, what should be a second or third level fruit of the gospel, when that declines, you see the consequences. Fascinating studies. 
but they ring to me that word from Haggai. Carefully consider your ways. What are the consequences of isolation and alienation? What are the consequences of a cafeteria faith where I pick and choose what I like to make a religion for me rather than the gospel that reaches to us from a transcendent and good God. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we might hear the quiet and tender, encouraging voice of your Holy Spirit saying, consider your ways. For this point, we're here and we're listening and we'll consider And we thank you that you have grace to help us to renew, to take new steps. Not because our steps have power, but because you are leading us in this journey of being found in, formed by, and following Jesus Christ. So help us live in this cycle, this journey of drawing close to you, of being uh, empowered by your grace to live out the fruit of your good work. Help us to pray and then to act. Help us to point to Jesus rather than ourselves. Fill us with a great hope, we ask, O God, a joy that comes from you, a joy that is great hope. Thank you for this moment. Be with your people. Be encouragement but renewal. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people said together, amen and amen. I want to close with a hymn and a reflection. It is for me in my own quiet time. It's hymn number 427, How Firm a Foundation is Laid for Your Faith in His Excellent Word. Let's stand as you're able and sing.
friends, receive this benediction. This is Paul's blessing at the close of his letter to the Romans. He says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Now according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.